This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Thank you, and welcome to the show. In doing some research for tonight's show, I found what writer Adam Graham had to say most interesting. So let me quote what he has written about writing an introduction to Sherlock Holmes. So I quote, To write an introduction for Sherlock Holmes is a daunting task. It's akin to writing an introduction to Shakespeare. The influence of Holmes is everywhere and in every culture on the globe. In the literature of Western civilization, it would be reasonable to state that Holmes' influence pales only in comparison to the Bible and Shakespeare. Holmes is quoted in productions as diverse as Star Trek VI and the Glenn Beck program. The basic facts of Holmes are well known to nearly every literate person on the globe. He was the creation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and made appearances in 56 short stories and four novels. He solved cases from 221B Baker Street in London with the assistance of his faithful companion, Dr. Watson. Holmes became so popular that Doyle couldn't get away with killing him. Holmes is one of the few timeless characters in literature. His adventures may have been set in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but in the hands of a competent author with few modifications, Holmes could show up at a medieval castle or on a starship and still be a powerful character. Although many actors have portrayed Sherlock Holmes, it's instructive to note that more than 40 years after his death and more than 60 years after he played Sherlock Holmes, Basil Rathbone is viewed as the definitive Holmes by viewers around the world, unquote. And Dr. Watson, well, Nigel Bruce had that signature role in the 1939-46 Sherlock Holmes film series with close friend Basil Rathbone as Holmes. In fact, Bruce starred as Watson in all 14 films of the series and over 200 radio programs of the new adventure of Sherlock Holmes. And although Watson often appears to be the older of the two main characters, Bruce was actually three years younger than his co-star Basil Rathbone. Nigel Bruce typically played buffoonish, fuzzy-minded gentlemen. During his film career, he worked in 78 films, including Treasure Island in 1934 and The Charge of the Light Brigade, to name just a few. Though for most viewers, Nigel Bruce formed their vision of Dr. Watson, Holmes purists have long objected that the Watson of the books was intelligent and capable, although not an outstanding detective, and that Bruce's portrayal uh, made Watson far dimmer and more bumbling than his literary uh, original. Personally, I loved his characterization. So let's put these two old friends back to work in the episode, The Limping Ghost. That rewind brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine 
invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another of his fascinating stories about his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now let's look in on our good friend, Dr. Watson, and see if he's expecting us. Oh, come in. Come in, Mr. Bartell. You're just the man I've been expecting. How are you, Dr. Watson? It's good to see you again. Oh, thank you, my boy. It's very nice to see you again, too. I've missed our Monday night visits during the last three months. Mr. Sovdar, uh, would you care to join me in a, in a glass of port? Thanks, Doctor. That'd be nice. You know, it seems to me, after our summer vacation, a toast of the great Sherlock Holmes would be in order. That's an excellent idea. Here you are, young fellow, my lad. Thanks. You propose the toast, Doctor. To Sherlock Holmes, master detective and loyal friend, whose adventures have brought considerable, shall we say, fame to a certain retired doctor now living in Northern California. I'll drink to that. Well, now, suppose I might as well get on with tonight's story. Which particular adventure have you selected, Doctor? One that I call the limping ghost. Sounds exciting. And, as usual, you find me saying, how did they begin? In Baker Street on a windy December evening at the turn of the century. A young, white-faced boy sat in front of our blazing fire. And as he told us his strange story, the flickering firelight danced weird patterns on the walls. The young man was Alexander McMorris, the seventh Earl of Loch Nair. The Earl of Loch Nair? Say, uh, didn't I read in the papers the other day that the eighth Earl of Loch Nair had been killed in an airplane accident? Quite right, my boy. Even in this day and age, the tragic history of violent death seems to dog the footsteps of the Loch Nair family. But to return to my story... On that December night in 1900, we heard the whole history of the limping ghost of Loch Nair. The first Earl had lost a foot at the Battle of Flodden Field in 1513. In spite of this terrible handicap, he fought on valiantly until he died on the battlefield from loss of blood. From then on, right until the time this story begins, the limping ghost, clad in a suit of armor, always appeared at Loch Nair Castle before and after the death of the current Earl. Yes, Mr. Bartell... It was a strange story that Sherlock Holmes and I listened to that night. A story of death and horror over the centuries, punctuated by the limping clank of ghostly armor. Milady, I have terrible news for you. Your husband, the Earl, was killed in the explosion that destroyed Lord Darnley. to blow up the Houses of Parliament has failed. Your husband is in the Tower of London. They say he's to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Madam, I regret to inform you that your husband, on my instructions, has been arrested for murder. I have no doubt that he will hang. And that's the story of the Loch Nairs, Mr. Holmes. You were instrumental in sending my great-uncle to the gallows, a fate which he richly deserved, I'm told. So it seemed only natural to come here to Baker Street and consult you now that I'm in trouble. I shall be most happy to do anything I can to help you, sir. I don't remember anything about your sending the Earl of Loch Nair to the scaffold, Holmes. Well, he did, Dr. Watson. Mm -hmm. And the servants have always sworn the ghost really did walk at midnight on the day that he was hanged. Indeed. Now, sir, I suggest that you tell us what problem brought you here. The ghost is walking again, Mr. Holmes. You know what that means. According to the legend, that the present Earl will die 
Exactly. And as I'm the present Earl, <laughs> you can see why I'm rather worried. Might I understand that you've actually seen this ghost yourself? Yes, Mr. Holmes. The night before last, Betty, well, that is, Miss Nolan and I, were sitting in the dining hall in front of the fire when we heard a strange sound up in the musician's gallery. We looked up and in the moonlight saw a ghostly figure in armor limping towards the staircase. Oh, gracious me. Uh, my dear sir, you're certain that you really saw it? Moonlight can play strange tricks, you know. There wasn't any doubt about it, Doctor. We both mm -hmm. saw and heard it. What did you do? I started to go towards the stairs, but as I did so, Betty screamed and then tumbled to the floor in a heap. Mm. Fainted, I suppose. Yes. While I was reviving her, the, the ghost disappeared. Who's staying with you at Lochnair Castle at the moment? Well, there's Betty Nolan. She's the sister of James Nolan. He looks after my estate. Uh, Betty and I are engaged to be married. Oh, congratulations, Thank you. Yes, indeed. Anyone else staying with you? Yes, a distant cousin of mine, Jeremy K. McMorris, an American. He turned up in England a couple of months ago with his son, Walter. They're both with me at the present. A distant cousin. That's right, Mr. Holmes. Actually, they're descendants of a more than usually black sheep branch of the family. I, uh, I don't know how long the old man's going to be with us, though. You ask me, he's a dying man. How do you say that, sir? As far as I can gather, he's been wasting away for years. It's only a question of time before his strength fails him entirely. I, uh, <clears throat> was hoping perhaps you could take a look at him, Dr. Watson. That is, uh, if I could persuade you and Mr. Holmes to come and stay at the castle for a few days. Well, what about it, Holmes? It's an intriguing problem, Watson. The current Earl of Lochner would seem to be in danger. A cousin of his is dying of an obscure disease, and the ghost of Lochner Castle is walking again. Yes, it's an irresistible invitation. I see no reason why we can't leave on the Scotch Express tonight. It's been quite a heavy fall of snow here in your absence, young man. Quite so. Judging from the color of the sky, there's more to come. Oh, very angry looking. Mm. Oh, now as we round this bend, you'll be able to see the castle. Ah, yes. There you are, gentlemen. <laughs> Magnificent. Yes, it's a fine place, all right, Doctor, though it cost me a great deal in upkeep. Matter of fact, I only have one wing open. It's always been something of a problem to get servants to come and live here. See, the local villagers have a great respect for the Lochnair ghost, you know. What servants do you have at the castle at present? A cook housekeeper, Mrs. McClintock, fine old lady who's been with me for six years now. And then there's old Tamas. He served my family for as long as I can remember. Well, as a matter of fact, there he is now. Hello, Tamis. I'm glad to see you back, my lord, and that's a fact. Oh, thank you, Tamis. Oh, these gentlemen are Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson. Good day to you, gentlemen. Good day, Thomas. Good day. Uh, before I take the trap round to the stables, I may as well break the news to you. Yes, what's happened, Tamis? It's your cousin, my lord. Poor old Mr. McMorris, he's dead. Huh? Died early this morning. God rest his soul. Yes. I'm very sorry that I arrived too late to be of any help. Well, thank you for telling me, Thomas. Oh, you may take the trap round now. Aye, sir. I'll bring the baggage up late. So he's dead. Well, I can't say it's unexpected, but it is a shock, nevertheless. I'm sure that it must be, particularly as you yourself told us you saw the ghost of Lochner the night before last. In which case... In which but... case, Watson, I think we may reasonably expect another visitation. Perhaps before the night is over. Should we go in? This is Miss Nolan, my fiancée, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and Dr. Watson. I'm very glad to meet you. How are you, Miss Nolan? And uh, this is her brother, James Nolan, the manager of my estate. How do you do, sir? How are you, Mr. Nolan? Much better for seeing you both up here. 
I'm sure it won't take you long to lay this ghost business by the heel. Oh, well, I trust you don't overestimate our abilities, Mr. Nolan. Alec, you've heard about your cousin, of course. Oh, yes, my dear. Tamas told us as we drove up. Where is Walter? He went into the village with the doctor and the body of his father. Oh. He should be back soon. How's he taking it? Very quietly. Too quietly, if you ask me. Those Americans are pretty demonstrative people, you know. And Walter's been no exception. But he behaved very strangely this morning. When the doctor told him his father was dead, he just said, now things will start to happen and then shut up like an oyster. I can't make head or tail of the fellow. Uh, yes, quite so, Carter. Uh, Mr. Holmes, I expect you and Dr. Watson would like to go to your room. Yes, I must confess. I think I'd first like I'd like to... to take a look at the um, oh. musician's gallery, if you don't mind. Oh, yes, of course. Would you excuse us, darling? We're all right, Alec. It's uh, in the dining hall here. They must have been very hospitable people in those days. Fifty or sixty people could eat at that table. <laughs> yes, Doctor. Needless to remark, we hardly ever use the room nowadays. There's the musician's gallery, Mr. Holmes. Oh, yes, yes, I see. How do we get up there? I'll show you. See, there's a stone staircase behind this tapestry here. Follow me. Watch your step. It's quite narrow, rather dark. Watch your head, Watson, old chap. Oh, don't worry about me, Holmes. I'm perfect. Oh, must have built these stairs for pygmies. Oh, yes. Here we are, gentlemen. This is the musician's gap. By Jove. It must have made a pretty picture in the days gone by. A little string orchestra fiddling away up here and down below the Scottish nobility bobbing and floating round in the intricacies of a Highland chatiche or a stately gavotte or something. Where does that door lead to? To the bedroom wing. And that's where the ghost appeared from the other night, I suppose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Uh-huh. Door's jar. Do you generally keep this door unlocked, sir? Why, no. But the key mysteriously disappeared about a week ago. James is having a new one made. So I must remind him about that. Alex! Alex, uh, Oh, we're up here, Walter. We're coming down. That's Walter McMorris. My dead cousin's son. Oh, fellow, this must be a dreadful day for him. Yes, I'm afraid this is going to be a rather painful interview. Oh, hello, Walter. This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Sherlock Holmes, sir. I've heard about you and your friend, Dr. Watson. Walter, old man, I'm dreadfully sorry about your father. Are you now? Isn't that nice of you? Well, you'll be sorry enough when you hear that I'm going to take you to court and prove that I'm the real Earl of Loch Ness. Walter, you're out of your mind. Am I? No. Father was out of his because he kept quiet all these years. But I'm going to have my rights. I've looked up the records. I've had genealogists working for months. And I've got all the facts that prove you're an imposter. Oh, man, what are you talking about? You know well enough. When Sherlock Holmes here sent your great uncle to the gallows 20 years ago, the title and estate should have come to my father. When I leave here tomorrow, I'm going straight to the finest lawyer in London. Heavens, man, if you believe this, why have you said nothing about it till now? Because I'm smart. I found out a thing or two since I've been staying here. And one of the things I found out is that your precious fiancée and her brother wouldn't look twice at you if it weren't for your money and the title. Shut up. You'll find out. She's a smart little filly, and she knows what kind of a track she's running. Why, you dirty... My compliments, sir. A very professional uppercut. Yes, and a very well-deserved one. Hi. Offensive scoundrel. Sorry about this. Uh, please don't say anything in front of Betty. Don't upset her. I quite understand. Come along, Watson. Let's go and find our room. <laughs> Holmes, 
nearly dinner time. Why are we wandering about here in the dark instead of having a glass of sherry with the others in the library? I'm a conscientious practitioner, Watson. I like to earn my fees. It uh, occurred to me that a further examination of this dining hall might prove profitable. Well, personally, Holmes, I think you're wasting your time on this case. <laughs> what makes you think that, old chap? It's perfectly obvious that young American fellow was impersonating the ghost a few nights ago. He knew his father was going to die, and he wanted to build up the legend so as to make his own claim seem more believable. That's very sound reasoning, Watson. Though to be logical in his perception, he should repeat the performance now that his father is dead. Well, ghosts only walk at midnight. So why don't we go and have a glass of sherry? Shh. Hmm? What is it, Holmes? Someone's coming in from the library. The lighted candle. Yes? Who is it? It's me, Mrs. McClintock. Oh, gracious me. You, you gave me quite a start. I heard voices and I knew the candles were not alight in here, so I came in to see who it was. You're watching for the ghost, I suppose. Well, you'll no be disappointed, gentlemen, though you may see more than you bargained for. Those that meddle with ghostly things they do not comprehend are playing with something much more dangerous than fire. Fire burns. But the shades on dead people... Holmes, Holmes! Look up there in the gallery! The door's opening! It's the ghost! Aye, here it comes, the poor body. See the armor on him, and the way he's dragging one leg behind him. Yes, it's really quite an effective impersonation. And the twilight provides most appropriate lighting for his play acting, too. You mean it's the young American? Of course. Obviously. <coughs> look, look behind him. There's another figure. Yes. Dressed in the same kind of armor and carrying a sword. The game's afoot, Watson. The ghost has seen him. He's turning. The second figure's raising his sword. Look out! <laughs> Great heavens! He's knocked him through the railings. That must be a 20-foot fall. Come on, old fellow. Help me open his visor. Just a minute. Uh, yes. It's Walter McMorris, the American. Though from the angle of his head, I would suggest that it might be the late Walter McMorris. Eh, Watson? He's dead all right, Holmes. Huh? Neck broken. Meanwhile, the second figure has been able to slip back through that door and escape us. Come on, he was dressed in armor. He can't go very fast. Perhaps we can overtake him. And now back to tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure and the story of The Limping Ghost of Loch Nair. Confound it, Holmes. There's no trace of the ghost in the musician's gallery. Gave him too much of a start, I'm afraid. <laughs> of course you didn't find him. You'll never find him because he's not mortal. Mrs. McClintock, is the original suit of armor the one worn by the first Earl of Loch Ness still in the castle? Aye, sir. It's in the library through that door there. I'll take you to it. Don't bother, thank you. We'll find it. Come on, Watson. Bring that candle with you. Right, Joe. Huh? If you know what's good for you, you'll stop dabbling in matters you didn't really can. Holmes. What do you make of the second girl? Another imposter, obviously. But who could it have been? That's what we have to find out, old chap. Undoubtedly, someone knew that the American Walter McMorris was impersonating the ghost and used this macabre method to kill him. But why kill him? Possibly his claims to the title and estate were valid. Or perhaps some fanatic was so devoted to the Lochner legend that he assumed the role of ghost and killed him for his sacrilege. Hold the cat a little higher, will you, old chap? Yeah. Hello. Here's a suit of armor, Holmes. 
Lying in a heap on the floor. Oh, on the floor, eh? Where as it obviously belongs on that stand over there. It's perfectly clear what's happened. The second figure used this armor and slipped it back in here while we were examining the dead man. Possibly, Watson, possibly. At least this armor gives us a definite clue. But it limits the field of possible suspects. How do you mean, Holmes? Well, it's an interesting fact that the human race has grown definitely larger in the past 400 years. Very few modern men can wear authentic ancient armor like this. For example, take the first item on the top of the heap lying on the floor here. These gauntlets of chain mail. Start them on. Well, that's too small for exactly. me. Either you nor I could have worn this suit. No, 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 nor could young Nolan, the estate Whereas his sister could have done. Yes, so could Thomas the butler. He's a small fellow. And if it comes to that, Watson, our distinguished client, the young Earl of Loch Nair, is himself a small man. Right, so he is. And he might easily have had a motive. Young McMorris had disputed his right to the title earlier in the day. But we mustn't jump to conclusions. Nevertheless, you see what valuable evidence this armor has become. Hello, hello. It sounds as if the rest of the party are on the scene. Yes, I suggest that we join them without making any reference to this suit of armor. Remember, old chap, one of them in there is a murderer. And we may have to set a trap to catch him. Are you sure he's dead, Dr. Watson? There's no doubt about it. His neck was broken instantly by the fall. It's dreadful. Father and son both dying on the same day. And you say the real ghost came up behind him, Mr. Holmes, and struck him so they crashed through the railing up there. I said another figure dressed in armor and killed him, Mr. Nolan. It was a real ghost. I saw him with my own two eyes. He killed that man for trying to bring shame on the name of Loch Nair. Shouldn't we get in touch with the police? How can I get a message to them tonight? Have you looked outside? We're almost completely snowed in. Snowed in? Oh, Alec, I'm frightened. Now, hush, darling. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. No, at least we have the assurance that the ghost will not limp again. Why? Well, the murderer has no further motive for impersonating the ghost. To walk now would be to support the dead American's claims. No, we shall spend a quiet night, and tomorrow I shall communicate with the proper authorities as to my quite definite notions regarding the murderer's identity. Uh, but if the ghost should walk again, Mr. Hurd? Well, then, sir, I shall know that at last I've encountered a truly supernatural crime and shall retire from the practice of, um, of detection. <laughs> It's, it's nearly two o'clock. Are you still over there by the window, puffing away that pipe of yours? <sighs> you know, I can't help feeling that young McMorris knows a great deal more than he told us. A great deal more. There's a shifty look about him I don't like. Never did trust a fellow. Could look you squarely in the eye. But you feel the same way, Holmes? Holmes. Holmes, where are you? Holmes! Shh, Mark Watson. Where have you been? I thought you were over there by the window. I've uh, been talking to myself. Never mind that, old chap. Get your slippers on and your dressing gown. We're on the last lap of this strange, eventful tragedy. Oh, thank the Lord for that. Perhaps I can get some sleep. Holmes, where have you been? I went to the musician's gallery and baited the trap. Now it's ready to spring. Don't dawdle, Watson. Come on, come on. I'm not dawdling. I'm not dawdling. What do you mean, you, you baited a trap? You'll see for yourself in a few moments. As a matter of fact, I really baited it when I said downstairs that if the real ghost should walk again, I would retire from the practice of detection. I didn't understand your saying that myself. Well, I was tempting the murderer to show his hand once more. Come on, come on, please. Where are we going? To wait behind the curtain at the foot of the stairs leading to the musician's gallery. And I hope we don't have to wait very long.
Holmes, I'm getting a crick in my neck trying to peer through this wretched curtain. How much longer do we have to wait? Our murderer arrived. Are you, are you certain you'll come? Not certain, but hopeful. Extremely hopeful. You know who it is, don't you? Yes. But my proof is too thin for a court of law. I must catch him in the act. Here he comes. Splendid. Let's go up and grab him. No, 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 no. They walk into my trap. He's coming towards the head of the stairs. Oh! Great Scott! Exactly. A simple piece of wire stretched across the gallery is remarkably effective, even with ghosts. Come on, Watson. Help me off with his visor. There we are. Good oh. Lord, it's... Oh. It's James Nolan. Exactly. Well, what's happened? You walked into a simple trap, my friend. I'm afraid the next trap will be more lethal. For it will undoubtedly prove to be the one beneath the gallows. Well, now that we're headed back for London, Holmes, perhaps you'll settle one or two points in the case... They're bothering me quite a bit. Oh, with pleasure, my dear chap. What are they? I still don't see what Nolan's motive was in murdering the American. Oh, that should be obvious. He wanted to ensure that his sister's fiancé would enjoy undisputed title to the name and estates. Well, how did you know it was Nolan? When I examined the authentic suit of armor. You see, it was um, obvious it had never been worn. But I still don't quite oh, understand. Oh, come now, old chap. The suit of armor was in a heap on the floor. Yeah? And if it had been hastily discarded and yet... Um, well, the gauntlets were on top of the pile, you remember? Well, that's right, they were. If the suit had really been worn, the gauntlets would have been the first things to have been taken off, and so would have been um, underneath the pile. Hmm? Obviously, therefore, the armor had been disarranged in order to make people believe the real ghost had walked. <laughs> After the American's death, the suspects were four. Miss Nolan, her brother, Thomas, the butler, and the Earl himself. Well, I ruled out Mrs. McClintock because, you remember, she was standing behind us at the time of the murder. Well, I'm beginning to understand. All the suspects except Nolan were small enough to have worn the armor. That's right. Therefore, only he could have pretended to use it. Pretended? But he, he did use it. Oh, no, my dear fellow. Undoubtedly, he procured a similar one of modern manufacture. An amazing case, Holmes. An interesting one, at any rate. And once again, old fellow, I'm possibly reminded of an old Scottish litany. Scottish litany? Which one's that? Oh, you remember it. From ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. <laughs> Good Lord, deliver us. Well, Doctor, that was really a swell story. You know, for a while there, I was beginning to believe in ghosts. Well, I'm ashamed to admit it, but at the time, so was I. <laughs> you know, this sounds silly, but... I bet it would be fun to be one of those legendary English ghosts. You know, go around sticking your nose into everybody's business, playing practical jokes like mad, and nobody able to figure out who did it. That would really be fun in a way. Well, you can go around scaring people all you want to, but not for me. I think a ghost leads a terrible life myself. For instance, a ghost can't have the pleasure of eating a nice, juicy steak. Yeah, or drinking a glass of really good wine. Ah, now you're talking, young fellow, my lad. Petri wine. Yeah, still talking. Uncle. You see, when I say good wine, I always mean Petri wine because you can depend on Petri. I know, I know. Why, the Petri family has been making wine for generations. Handing on down from father to son, from father to son, all their skill and knowledge and experience. When you realize they started the Petri business way back in the 1800s, well, common sense tells you the Petri family knows practically all there is to know about the fine art of turning luscious grapes 
into clear, fragrant wine. Yep, whether you're looking for a swell wine to serve before dinner or with dinner or after dinner, for any occasion, you just can't go wrong with a Petri wine because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Doctor, what story are you going to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a strange adventure that Holmes and I had in the English countryside. It concerns the apparent madness of a certain Colonel Warburton and the puzzling mystery of two dead dogs. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Crooked Man. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband, next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Time now for My Favorite Husband. It's time for My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. Jello, everybody. <laughs> Yes, it's the Gay Family Series, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning. Transcribed and brought to you by the Jell-O family of desserts. J-E-L-L-O, the big red letter stands for the Jell-O family. Oh, the big red letter stands for the Jell-O family. That's Jell-O. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O puddings. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O tapioca puddings. Yes, sir. And now, Lucille Ball with Richard Denning as Liz and George Cooper. Two people who live together and like it. As we look in on the Coopers tonight, summertime is fast approaching. And Liz has roused herself from spring fever long enough to go on a shopping spree for some beach clothes. Katie, come here a minute, will you? Yes, Mrs. Cooper, what is it? I want you to take a look at my new sundress. How do you like it? Is that it? Yes, this is what they're showing this year. Really? That's what they were hiding last year. (laughs) Oh, Katie, how do you like it? Well, it's very nice. Uh, How do you keep it up without any straps? Well, it's a new theory, Katie. It's held up by the wind from men whistling at you. (laughs) Katie, see all my new play clothes? My goodness, did you buy all those this morning? Yes, I want to look good for George. He's going to see a lot of me this summer. (laughs) He's not the only one. (laughs) I even bought one of those new French bathing suits. It's there on the bed. 
Well, I don't see it. Here's your slacks, pedal pushers, your beach robe, and this little green handkerchief. That's funny. Oh, here it is. No wonder you couldn't see the bathing suit. It was under the handkerchief. (laughs) Are you really going to wear that? I will if George will let me. Oh, he will. Men like women in scanty bathing suits. If the women aren't their wives. A man will admire a scanty suit on a blonde at the beach, but let his wife put on that same suit, and he says, You're not going out like that, are you? How true. Oh, I forgot. The mail came a while ago. Here it is. Thanks. Anything for me? No. Oh, I never get any. Oh, here's a letter for me. Really? Yeah, see? Occupant, 321 Bundy Drive. (laughs) I think I'll change my name to Occupant Cooper, and then I'll get as much mail as George does. And there's one there addressed to Mr. and Mrs. George Cooper. Oh, good. Where is it? I'm entitled to read every other line. Here. Oh, no. Well, what's the matter? It's from Weeping Willow Ranch. You know, that dude ranch where we spent our vacation last year. Are you going there again? Over my dead body. Oh, Katie, it's awful. One week there and you understand why the willows are weeping. <laughs> the planned fun starts at six o'clock in the morning. You bound out of bed and run into breakfast. You did that? Are you kidding? I crawled out of bed and was led into breakfast. (laughs) How was the food? Oh, not food, Katie. Chuck. Chuck. Yes, and they couldn't have thought of a better name for it. (laughs) Oh, Katie. George must have written asking about reservations again this year. This is an answer saying they can take us. Oh. I don't want to go there. I want to go to the beach with the Atterbury's. Well, maybe you can talk Mr. Cooper into it. Why, Katie, I'd never try to talk George into anything. We'll discuss it calmly, examine the best features of both places, and then go to the one we think is best, the beach. Well, did you like your dinner, George, little baby, honey? Yes. Yes, dear, it was fine. Are you comfortable in that chair, George? Would you like another pillow behind your back? No, thanks. Oh, it's no trouble at all. I'll I'll just get another pillow and then... Liz, you've got so many pillows behind my back now, my head's between my knees. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Well, shall I get you a pair of slippers? Yes, I'll wear them on my hands. (laughs) What? Oh, you already have your slippers on, don't you, dear? Okay, Liz, what have you done? (laughs) Nothing, dear. What are you planning to do? Nothing. Look, I know all the signals. You're fattening me up for the kill. (laughs) Now, let's have it. I have nothing on my mind. Really? Absolutely. Go ahead, go to that lousy weeping willow ranch. (gasps) Oh, Well, I gather from this that we heard from the ranch. Did you open the letter? Yes, it came addressed to both of us. What did it say? I only read every other line. Mm. Come on, Liz. What did every other line say? It said, Dear Saddle Pals, In reply to your letter of, Delighted to have you dig your spurs into, Our new manager and courteous waitress. (laughs) 
this year a $20 private cottage or $15 if you share it with one of our new cow ponies. <laughs> Signed, the old Wrangler. Very clever. I suppose we're going to have our yearly debate about uh, where to spend the vacation. Okay, debate. The question is... Resolved that we are not going to spend our vacation at that stinky old Weeping Willow Ranch. You take a negative. Go ahead. Madam Chairman, my worthy opponent and friends, I like the stinky old Weeping Willow Ranch. I think it's one of the nicest Time's up. of all... Time's up. <laughs> now for the affirmative. Now, wait a minute. Oh, let's not talk about it, George. Let's just not go. Can you suggest a better place? Yes, I'd like to go to the beach. The beach? Oh, come now, you must have heard of it. <laughs> the Atterberries are going, and I thought it would be fun if we'd go, too. Well, but there's nothing to do at the beach. Oh. Everybody covers themselves with oil and lies in the sun all day, slowly turning so they'll get done all over. It's nothing but a big sandy barbecue pit. <laughs> I suppose you never heard of swimming. Well, I have, but I didn't think you did. The closest you ever came to the water was when a dog came up to you and shook himself. <laughs> you don't even know how to swim. I'll learn. I've heard that song before. Oh, but George, your swimming suits are so cute this year, and the beach clothes are so gay and colorful. And so that's it. They got little pleats in them all around. <laughs> Liz, I'll make a bargain with you. If you learn to swim, and I mean really swim, before vacation time, we'll go to the beach. Oh, George, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. But if you don't, we'll go back to the Weeping Willow Ranch. Don't worry. I'll learn. I'll learn. And don't buy any beach clothes until this is all settled. George, even after I learn to swim and you agree to go to the beach, I'm not going to buy a thing. What? I mean it because I love you so much, I'll struggle along on just what I've got in my closet now. <laughs> Mrs. Cooper, what are you doing in your bathing suit? I'm going to take my swimming lesson. You found a teacher? Yes, Ralph Wood, the oldest boy from next door. He's the high school champion. Oh, there he is. I'll get it. Good morning, Mrs. Coops. <laughs> Did I get you out of the shower? No, it's all right, Mr. Wood. This is my bathing suit. You don't have to stand with your back to me. That's a bathing suit? Yes. Hmm. Well, are you all ready for your lesson? Yes. Where's your son? Oh, he couldn't make it, but I've arranged for you to take a lesson from the person who taught him everything he knows. Who's that? Me. <laughs> oh, well, where should we go? Out to the club? Oh, there's no need to go way out there. I can teach you right in your living room. Really? Well, come on. Let's go around through the kitchen and come in at the shallow end. <laughs> you can learn very easily if you'll just remember that swimming is merely a matter of applied physics. Oh. <laughs> You see, when a body is immersed in water, it displaces its own weight, and by means of propulsion of a given direction, the water that is displaced in front is found to be at the back. <laughs> this is known as swimming. Isn't there a simpler way of doing it? 
Well, you can jump into the water and move your arms and legs. <laughs> well, that's more like it. Are you sure you can teach me to swim here? Certainly, it's applied physics. When a body is immersed in water... I know, I know. But will it work if a body is immersed in a hardwood floor? <laughs> Why not? A fair question. <laughs> you learn to swim in the living room. When you get into the water, you simply apply what you've learned. It'll be the same thing, only wetter. Wetter, yeah. <laughs> now, lie down on the floor. Okay. Now, what do I do? And now, first, bring the right arm over the head and forward and down. Okay. <clears throat> Fine. Now, do the same thing with the left arm. Okay. <laughs> Ouch. What's the matter? This ocean has splinters in it. <laughs> That's too bad. All right, now, while you're moving your arms, you are kicking at the same time. All right. Yeah. Ouch! More splinters? No, hard water. <laughs> well, lift your feet a little. Now, try again. How does this look? Oh, wait a minute. What's the matter? I forgot to tell you to breathe. That's okay. I went ahead and breathed anyway. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. In swimming, you breathe a different way than you ordinarily do. How? Through your ears? <laughs> no, no. You're supposed to breathe when your head is out of the water. You know, I'll bet I would have found that out anyway. <laughs> well, now, let's try it again and put everything together. All right, here I go. <clears throat> oh, fine, fine. You're doing just fine. Yeah. Hey, hey, look at me. I swam clear across the living room. Yes. <laughs> if the current hadn't been against me, I'd have made it into the dining room. <laughs> Congratulations, Mrs. Cooper. You're a wonderful pupil. You mean I know how to swim? Certainly you know how to swim. Gosh, that wasn't hard at all. What have I been afraid of all these years? Come on back tomorrow, Mr. Wood, and I'll dive off the mantelpiece. <laughs> I'm home. Hi, George, baby. Give me a kiss. <laughs> mm. What's new? What, what did you do today? Oh, nothing exciting. I had a manicure, learned how to swim, marketed a uh, little. Uh, 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 just a minute. Learned how to swim? Yes. Isn't it wonderful, George? Now we can go to the beach this summer. Uh, do you expect me to believe you learned how to swim since this morning? Yes. Mr. Wood said I have a natural talent for it. He gave me a lesson, and I just swam all over the place. Mm. How far did you swim? Oh, about as far as from here to the dining room. By yourself? All by myself. Hey, that's great, Liz. You, you weren't even afraid, huh? Afraid? I was as calm as though I'd been swimming right here in my own living room. <laughs> no kidding. That's right. I'm proud of you. It, was the water cold out at the club? I didn't notice it. I'll get it. Okay, I'll go see if dinner's ready. Hello. Hello, Mr. Cooper. This is Benjamin Wood. Well, hello, Mr. Wood. I understand you gave Liz a swimming lesson today. That's right. How'd she do? Oh, wonderfully. I called to see if she got all the splinters out. <laughs> splinters? Yeah, she picked up a big one. <laughs> Where? Right between the piano and the divan. 
<laughs> Say, what do you talk... Say, where did she take this lesson anyway? In your living room. It was sort of a dry run. Uh-huh. Well, she's fine, Mr. Wood. Well, that's good. Goodbye. Goodbye. Liz! Dinner's almost ready, George, and boy, am I hungry. Mm. Splashing around in the pool must have given you an appetite. Uh, swimming is what did it. That water is exhilarating, isn't it? Swimming certainly is. You should have seen me, George. I was like a little seal. Sounds more like a little lion. <laughs> a little sea lion? No. No, just plain lion. <laughs> that was Mr. Wood on the phone, Liz. <laughs> How many splinters did you average per mile? I'm certainly surprised at the way you deceived me, Liz. I didn't. I never said I was in the water. I asked Mr. Wood if I knew how to swim, and he said yes, and I can. There's nothing to it. All right. That's good enough for me. It is? Sure. I'll meet you out at the club tomorrow afternoon, and if you can swim the length of the pool, we'll go to the beach for our vacation. Oh, give me more time, George. I've only had one lesson. Oh, no. No, you said you knew how to swim. Well, tomorrow we'll find out. I'll meet you at the club pool at 3.30. All right, I'll be there. And I'll jump in that pool and swim if it's the last thing I do. Oh, why do I say things like that? As we return to the Coopers, it's three o'clock in the morning and all is still. All that is except Liz. From the way she's thrashing about the bed, it looks like she's having a nightmare about swimming. Stroke. 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 <coughs> well, what's the matter? Who, who did that? Oh, oh, ouch. Hey, Liz. Stroke. Oh, Liz. Huh? Oh, George, save me. I'm going under. Oh, take it easy. You're, you're Help. Save me. Save me. Oh, Liz, you got me around the neck. Help. Help. We're going down. Fight your way to the surface. Huh? Huh? Oh, oh, George, that was an awful dream. I dreamt I was in swimming, and how'd we get down here? We disappeared under the covers for the third time and sank slowly to the floor. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Let's swim to the surface and go back to sleep, huh? Gosh, I'm afraid to. You go to sleep, George. I'll be right back. Liz, where are you going? Into the dressing room. I want to see if I have a nightgown with water wings in it. (laughs) Iris. Iris, here I am, over by the pool. Soon as I could, girl. Is George here yet? No. Oh, it's no use, Iris. I'll never make it. I don't even know what I'm doing here. Chin up, girl. I brought something with me. What? Look. A pair of water wings. Oh, I thought of that, but it's no good. George would see them. They're white, and my bathing suit is black. 
Let's put them under your bathing suit. <laughs> under my bathing suit? Yeah, then he'd never guess. Won't I look kind of lumpy? <laughs> uh, well, let's see where we could put them. Oh, I know. You're a little swayback. What? <laughs> now, look, I don't have time for false modesty. Swayback, yes. Yeah. We'll just put the water wings under your suit in the middle of your back, like this. There. And then we'll blow them up and you'll get in the water before George gets here. He won't be able to see them. Well, it might work. I can't even see them. Well, they're not blown up yet. <laughs> oh. Yeah. How are we going to blow them up? Uh... It can only be done by a midget or are you bangy? <laughs> one idea gone. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Come with me. Where? The gas station in the parking lot. They have an air hose. <laughs> now, that might work. Come on. As long as you stay in the water, George can't tell a thing. This is the first time I've gone to a gas station to get my air checked. <laughs> Good afternoon, ladies. Can I help you? Uh, uh, can we use your air hose? Certainly. Have a flat? Where's the car? Car? Yeah, with a flat tire. What were you planning to do? Take the air over a mouthful at a time? <laughs> no, just let us use the air hose and thanks. Oh, yeah, go take care of that car. I'll be right back. Quick, Iris. Turn around. Let me get this hose down the back of your baby suit. Oh, it's cold. <laughs> Anybody? Hey, hey, look at her back. It, it's all swollen. This is fine, Iris. Put the hose away. And... I'll get a doctor. Oh, never mind. It's too late now. Come on, Liz. The boys will never believe this. <laughs> Well, it was a good try, Iris. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, look now, no more bright ideas, please. We've been fools, Liz. We can get George on a technicality. How? He said you had to swim the length of the pool. Yeah? He didn't say anything about not wearing something to help you. We could have put the water wings on the outside. Now she thinks of it. I know. Rudolph has a life jacket he bought at the surplus store. I'll go and get it. Okay, go on. And you stole George till I get back, and I'll go as fast as I can. Well, hurry, Iris. You're all that stands between me and weeping Willow Ranch. All ready for the big swimming test? Oh, hello, George. Sorry I'm late, but Atterbury kept me talking about a big account. Oh, that's all right. You haven't seen Iris, have you? No. Well, let's get this over with. Come on, dive in. No, now, don't push me. I'll get in in a minute. Well, why in a minute? Well, uh, I'm just uh, hungry, that's why. I'd like something to eat first. I don't like to swim on an empty stomach. But if you eat something, you can't swim for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Liz, are you stalling? Stalling? Heavens, no. Well, then, what are you waiting for? 
Now get in the pool and start swimming. No, George, don't. I'm not ready. Woohoo, Liz, girl. I'm ready. <laughs> Here you are, Liz. Oh, thanks, Iris. Hey, what's going on? You can't wear a life jacket. Can't I? Put your arms in here, Liz. There. Fasten it, will you, Iris? Uh-huh. Liz, I'm warning you, this isn't going to count. You said swim the length of the pool. You did not say how. Now, look. Here you... I go. Whee! Oh, look at her go. <laughs> what a low-down trick. <laughs> well, George, she did fill her part of the bargain. Well, I guess she did. Well, if she cares that much about going to the beach, I guess we can go. I'll teach her to swim while we're there. Hey, look at me! Look at me! I'm swimming! Okay, Liz, you win. Hey, watch this! I'm a whelp! (laughs) (laughs) Would you look at that? She's floating on her back and blowing water in the air. Hey, there's nothing to this. Do we get to go to the beach, George? Okay, we'll go. Oh, boy, this jacket's wonderful. I know, I've seen them. All you do is pull that little string on the side and they inflate. (laughs) What little string? What little string? Liz, we didn't pull a string You've really been swimming (laughs) How do you like that, George? I've really been swimming right here in the deep water Deep water? Ah! Yes, Lucille, where do we go tonight? Tonight, Robert, we're meeting a sweet girl graduate, the valedictorian of her class. A little commencement music, please, maestro. Hello, I understand you just graduated. Yep, that's right. (laughs) Well, tell me, did you graduate cum laude? How's that again? I said, did you take any honors? No. Are there some missing? Oh, forget it. Forget it? Okay, I will if you will. Put her there, boy. Oh, wait a minute. What degree did you get when you graduated? A, B, Ph.D.? No, no. I got an R.A. R.A.? Yep. I said R, I said R-A, I said R-A-G-G. M- M-O-P-P, break my, break my, break my, break my. Wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Now, what degrees did you actually get? Oh, them. Uh, let's see now. I got uh, a J-E. And, uh, L-L-O. What do they stand for? What do they stand for? Oh! <laughs> well, actually, I'm an expert on jello. Let me give you a test. Oh, right. <laughs> now, what are the six delicious flavors? Oh. You're going to start with the hard one. Strawberry... Raspberry. Oh, yeah. 
Cherry berry, orange berry, lemon berry, lime berry. <laughs> No. no. Strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. Right, right. Next question. <laughs> what makes you think of the real ripe fruit itself? I don't know. <laughs> Jello does. It does? <laughs> yes. Didn't they teach you that the flavor is locked in and can't get out till your first delicious spoonful? This is the first time I heard of it. Are you sure? Of course. Didn't they tell you to look for the big red letters on the box? No. They didn't tell me. Hey, where are you going? I'm going back to school. Good night, Bob. You have been listening to My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning, and based on characters created by Isabel Scott Rorick. Tonight's transcribed program was produced and directed by Jess Oppenheimer, who wrote the script with Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll, Jr. Original music was composed by Marlon Skiles and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. The part of Katie, the maid, was played by Ruth Parrott. Watch for Lucille Ball in Fancy Pants with Bob Hope. Be sure to listen to Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband again next week. Presented by... J-E-L-L-O The big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. That's Jell-O. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O puddings. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O tap. The yolk of pudding. Yes, sir. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, where you meet Lucille Ball and my favorite husband every Sunday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's X-1, followed by Our Miss Brooks. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.